You're listening to Radio Primavera Sound, proudly presented by Cupra. Hello and welcome to Line Noise. We meet again. Uh, this week we have an interview with Paul Rose, aka Scuba, who is a label boss, DJ, producer, uh, podcaster of notes, uh, and uh, so much more. And it was someone who was right there uh, at the birth of dubstep with his hot flush label. Uh, it was a brilliant conversation, really interesting. And we talked about his life in Mallorca, being in a band with Johnny Burrell. Uh, the music that emerged uh, from dubstep, trying to call it post-dubstep, and uh, not really succeeding. We talked about being outspoken, uh, and we talked about his new mixtape, Digital Underground, uh, which is a fabulous piece of work. Uh, I hope you enjoy the interview as ever. Thanks so much um, for doing this. Um, You live in Mallorca, right? I do, yes, in Palma. What's it like there? It's lovely, actually. Yeah, it's very nice. Um, You're in Barcelona, right? Yes, yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of a smaller, um, tidier version of Barcelona, basically. That's kind of how I usually describe it to people. But um, yeah, no, it's, it's, I have no complaints whatsoever. It's easily the best place I've ever lived by a significant margin. What about music there? Are there lots of clubs and things? Not really, no, which was actually part of the attraction initially for moving here. Um, there's one or two things which have started, I mean, you have the kind of, you know, holiday stuff, but you know, whatever, less said about that, the better. Um, there's one or two things, uh, which are more quote unquote serious, which have, um, yeah, which have kind of been popping up. There's one called R33, which has been here for a while. I believe there used to be one in Barcelona actually of, of that. And then there's a newish one called Selva, which is, which is good, you know, kind of proper techno, that kind of thing. And then there's bits and pieces of festivals uh, over the summer. But no, I was pretty keen after having lived in, well, I mean, I initially moved here actually uh, direct from Berlin and I was kind of between here and London for a few years. But the initial motivation was really to get as far away from the Berlin music scene as possible. So I was more than happy in the first instance anyway, to be away from, you know, the music scene as it were. I mean, do do you wonder? And I'm slightly asking this from my from my own experiences. If um, you miss out on on musical things by living uh, in in Mallorca and well in Barcelona, in in my case, if it's the same kind of thing, I have considered this uh, at length, and I think you probably do. I think there is a network effect from living somewhere like Berlin, living in somewhere like Berlin or or London. Um, and you have to try and mitigate it somehow, but there's, yeah, I, I think there is, uh, um, what you gain from being out in terms of general sanity, you lose, I think from, uh, you know, the opportunities to work, you know, to meet people and to work with people and, um, you know, just the kind of peripheral cultural kind of benefits that you get from being in in a place which is much more kind of directly relevant culturally to you know to what you're doing if you're working this kind of music but you know like i said i it, you know you, as long as you kind of keep an eye on it and try and mitigate it somehow then it's it's a, it's a trade-off that i'm i'm comfortable with at this point i was going to ask if you you miss berlin but um i'm guessing not no <laughs> from what i've said i mean uh not really i mean it's it's some um, so I, I mean, I, I left quite a long time ago now. In fact, an unambiguously long time ago. It was like end of two thousand and fourteen, and in that, in like since then, it's changed an awful lot. And it, and I, well, I, I first moved over in two thousand and seven, and kind of had the impression that I was at the kind of tail end of the good bit, as it were. Uh, and I definitely felt that by by the time I left something had been lost from the from the you know just the atmosphere of the city and the way the clubs worked and the kind of um the kind of people who were moving there and you know which is it sounds it sounds bad to describe it like that and it's still a great place and it is still i think a place which is um you know you can get a lot out of what what goes on there for sure and i think if i was you know um 20 years younger then i would probably consider moving there 
but it's definitely not what it was. I think that's definitely true. But then, you know, it's very rare that places maintain something or the kind of thing that was uh, evident in Berlin between, I don't know, let's say 1995 and 2010 or something, something like that. It's a broad statement, but yeah, you know, it, it, it's those, those kinds of things are usually of the moment. So, yeah. Um, going back in, in history a bit, um, I read something on your Wikipedia page that I'm absolutely praying is true, but I'm wondering <laughs> if it's just sort of a <laughs> one of those Wikipedia pranks that you started off um, playing in a late 90s indie band, Violet, uh, alongside uh, Ray's Like founder Johnny Burrell. Is that true? That is absolutely true. Yes. My God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I actually haven't seen Johnny for a long, a long time. I, I kind of knew him when I was a kid because... Uh, we um we had friends in common at school he was in the year below me and we ended up in a band together and it didn't go that well <laughs> but you know um i don't know it's funny because he was i mean obviously he divides opinion amongst <laughs> just about everyone but before we were before we were in that band it was a kind of um i guess a little ecosystem of like teenage boys in bands together and i was in a different band and I remember doing a, doing the first gig we did with with his band, and just thinking, shit, that, that guy's really got something, <laughs> you know, like just in terms of like charisma and stage presence, right? So, and I was like, fuck, I don't really have that, damn. But but like I said, I mean, you know, there are lots of people who would uh, prefer not to be Johnny Burrell, so I'll I'll take that. Well, what do you sound like, Violet? We were kind of Suede Smith's kind of knockoff type band. Was that that era, good. Kinda late. I mean, you know, <laughs> I've got a, we did a demo and stuff. And in fact, actually, we 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 had a we had a track signed to. A, I mean, Michael Winterbottom used a track of ours on on a film of his back in the day. So we weren't completely without merit. But I mean, you know, it was it was one of those kind of first stabs at the music industry basically i mean we, we had a the kind of absolute stereotypical disaster gig where you know we we um, attracted a fair bit of a and r interest and we had a kind of set piece show where all the a and r's came down and it was a complete disaster and um uh, no one wanted to sign us after that so, <laughs> so it was one of those things where you learn a lot but you know uh it was a a, a cliche uh disaster of um young people trying to make it in the, in the business um obviously you're you're better known um for launching hot flush in 2003 um and i wanted to ask i mean because i have a slight difficulty describing the music that came out uh on on hot flush because i ended up i was thinking about it you end up going for things like or i end up going for things like post dubstep and uk bass which aren't really, which are kind of pretty horrible terms, um, but I can't think of anything better. So, I mean, what, what, what would you call it? I mean, the the period that we became well known, I suppose, was the quote, quote unquote pub post dubstep era, which, yes, I'm not a big fan of that term either. But I guess it just, I suppose, it just described a, a, the period after which dubstep crossed over and became popular uh, crossed over to the United States as well or North America most unfortunately but you know that was we would already been going to you know like like you said 2003 it started and, and that pro that probably didn't start until I mean that era that people talk about is probably mm, 2008 to 2012 so we'd already been going for five years when that happened and initially we were we were part of the scene the dubstep scene before it was called the dubstep scene really and there were kind of lots of what was so fun about that that era and that that period was um there were so many different kind of inputs to it and you know it was a, a small relatively small bunch of people playing on pirate in london going there was a couple of clubs you know it was forward most notably there was a you know one or two others and everyone was about the same age learning to produce and it was just one of those kind of accidental things that happened it was kind of at the periphery of you know, the end of the uk garage boom and you know it was just a lot of fun but i don't think um well i mean i know for a fact that none of us really 
expected it to go anywhere. And when dubstep eventually did blow up kind of in 2006, it was a complete surprise really to me. And to I think just about everyone else who was, who was involved with it. But, you know, in answer to your question, um, I don't know either really what, what kind of music we put out, <laughs> you know, we've had various, I suppose, um, periods of musical emphasis but it's all i mean people have tried to, you know I, i've got all sorts of pelters over the years for, for switching the music policy in ways that people don't like but it's always been i think quite varied you know which is not the you know it's not the way to do it if you're if you're wanting to build up a you know <laughs> a uh, consistent and sustained fan base but i i've been able to do unable to do anything else other than just release the music I like really at any given moment and that's I guess why it's a little bit difficult to pin down. I mean as a label boss what do you make of naming musical genres because I, I mean I personally I, mean, I don't have a label but I personally think it's necessary even if musicians hate doing it um, because people put labels on things and so if you don't then someone else is going to. What, what do you think? Um, yes it's frustrating and annoying and yes it's totally necessary <laughs> um as a music fan i'm you know very particular about wanting my bands and acts to stay in one lane and as a music maker i hate that <laughs> expectation from fans so you know i totally understand it and i totally accept it but at the same time it's really annoying and i wish it didn't exist so yeah i mean it's it's useful at the end of the day to put a label on something you know it helps people understand it and it helps people i guess navigate their way through what is just quite a lot of stuff out there right now especially now you know so i think it's you know it's unfortunate but yeah it's become i think more important uh and i think you know people's expectations that you do one thing have become more pronounced and you know as i said that is <laughs> it is frustrating i mean i think uh you know it's a common complaint over time of, of musicians <laughs> and other artists generally speaking you know like no one likes being typecast but it just makes it easier for people who want to listen to music or listen, you know or consume whatever art yeah you know, so i'm comfortable way of putting it but you know what i mean it just makes it easier for people so i understand it you know um i really enjoyed the interview you did with scream um a few weeks ago um mm. in which you talked a lot about the the early dubstep days um how how did you fit into that personally and and as a label yeah so as i mentioned there were so it was a relatively small number of people most of them were mates from croydon but by no means all so you know scream and you know people like obviously benga and then artwork who was working at uh Big Apple Records, I think, at the time, and and Hatcher, and Youngster, and you know, I think, um, you know, Sarah, who ran Forward. Uh, I'm pretty sure. I, th I think they're from Croydon as well, but like, they were certainly all part of the same kind of group. And in the way that it, dubstep has been, in the way that, that that era of dubstep anyway has been covered and written up, it seems like that was the only thing going on. But that's not true at all. And there were other people. Um, from different parts of London, uh, doing stuff too. And for the forward, uh, monthly night was the kind of place that everyone met up every month and kind of, and everyone knew each other. Like I said, it was a small group of people. Um, but yeah, there was, there was just more to it than just the Croydon thing. So like, like I was, um, uh, how do I, I can't actually remember how I met. I, I think I just, I just, I, I went to the first ever forward night, which was in 2001, just because I knew someone who had, had been invited down. I was interested in, you know, I was playing garage. Um, I was I'm really into the music and I was just like, yeah. You know, so I just went out to the first night and I just loved the first night. And I started, just kept going. And sometimes I would just go on my own and, you know, eventually, well, over time, it just became a, a community of people because, you know, <laughs> quite a lot of people fell away so it became you know you knew the people who were really serious about it because there weren't very many of them so i just you know it was um so apart from the croydon lot it was like uh 
Gary Quietstorm, who's ne- who then became known as Casper and Roscoe, and then quite quickly Shackleton and Appleblim started coming, but they came as punters and then became, you know, uh, people who t- took part in their own right. Um, and, you know, people like someone like Jada Flex, who was playing, and then, you know, the other kind of DJs and various other people. So I was kind of... Um, I was someone who came down as a fan initially. And then when it became clear that, you know, starting a label was something that I could do, I realized I could, well, I could fucking just do this. Um, you know, I became part of it in my, in a more kind of material kind of a way, you know, and, and as it developed over, well, like I said, so dubstep really blew up in 2006 and forward started in 2001. So that's five years of, you know, just going down to a club every month and swapping CDs and you know pressing up a 12 trying to sell it you know it was a real kind of the classic kind of diy thing but yeah i mean it was it was really um uh, you know disparate people but yeah acknowledging that that the kind of croydon gang uh include digital mystics as well in in that as well i didn't mention them like they was definitely the most there was just more of them than any other group really but and as such they uh, kind of became dominant, and obviously having you know, Scream was obviously the, and Scream and Digital Mystics, I suppose, were the, you know, the kind of dominant producers, I guess, or certainly the ones that kind of emerged as as dominant, and I guess as such, the legend kind of grew up around them. But like I said, it was it was a bit more you know varied than that, and yeah, I just kind of slotted in as I slotted in, really. Because you're from London, not Croydon, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Do people call Croydon London? I, it's technically, yeah, technically it's not, but yeah. I don't know. It's inside the N25, isn't it? So it just about counts. No, I'm from I'm uh, from North London. So I was kind of like, uh, yeah, I was born in Islington. So that's where I'm from. Um, so you, the first release on Hot Flush was you uh, as Spectre. Um, sorry, I said that stu- <laughs> stupid way. <laughs> um, I was trying not to say the E on the end. Um but have you always sort of produced as as well as DJ? Or did one did one come first? I le- I learned to DJ, um, but I was you know playing in indie bands as we've already established. So I wanted to make tunes, and it and you know had the sort of aspiration to do so. It took me a long time to get my shit together and actually do it, and certainly to actually you know make stuff that was worth releasing but i uh i certainly i reached a good level at the of djing before i reached a good level of producing put it that way um but it wasn't through lack of trying <clears throat> so so yeah it's it's always been a um it's the, they've always been two sides of the same coin for me yeah why did you then change the name to scuba well that was uh accidental so i always dj well i i never dj'd as spectre excuse me um, I never DJed as Spectre. I was actually DJing under my real name as Paul Rose. And then uh, the scuba thing happened really by accident. Uh, it was, I, I kind of had a, I had one of those breakthroughs in the studio and it was probably the first breakthrough that I had really. Or maybe the second, maybe I, maybe there was a breakthrough which enabled me to make the tunes which, which were the first release. But then it was a couple of years after that um, or maybe 18 months or something, because it was would have been the end of 2004. Um, I had one of those breakthroughs where, you know, you're like, fuck, this is actually, this is actually good now. <laughs> stuff, happen- stuff is happening here, which is actually decent. And I didn't want to, so in the context of, of the, um, the environment I've just described with, you know, the monthly meetup and the kind of texting people and, you know, there's a small group of people and everyone knows what each other's doing because you give out CDs every month. And, and, and so everyone's got, you know, everyone's gossiping about each other in a, in, in a fairly constructive and positive way, but like, you know, it's, it's a small knit scene, you know, so it's it got a little bit political. Um, and certainly everyone is, um, everyone's got an eye on it, on everyone else, you know? So I made these tunes and I didn't, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want people to know it was me, uh, <laughs> which is totally ridiculous. Um, but that's why I came up with a new name. And and what I did was uh, I, I I wanted to send them to Hatcher because Hatcher was the kind of number one DJ at the time for that kind of stuff. And so I literally 
put a C I burnt them on a CD, wrote scuba on the CD with, with almost no thought whatsoever and sent them to Hatcher in the post. And he called me the next day Well, I, with uh, my phone number as well was on the CD, I should say. And he called me the next day and said, who's this? These tunes are great. And must I've have been, been lumb lumbered with the name scuba ever since. <laughs> but that must have been terrifying, no? Like sending off to, tunes off to people you knew and knowing that, you know, you weren't going to get like a sort of response because they knew you, you were getting like the most honest response you can because you just put a different name on it or no response. What? Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's, um, like I said, when when you have one of those breakthroughs in the studio, it gives you an ex like a very high level of confidence. And I guess, I mean, I can't really remember how I thought about it, but I must have been very confident to do that. You know, I must have been very, yeah, I must have been extremely bullish about the um, the tunes on that CD. And I guess, uh, I guess in that case, it was, it proved to be justified. But yeah, no, you're right. I mean, you know, such as the, things you do when you're a young man right <laughs> but did you um you you said like you had um you had like a breakthrough in the studio mm. what did that actually sound like what did that mean that you you had a breakthrough well i mean these things happen to me i mean i, I don't know I actually i've never really put it in quite those terms before but i think that it's i think it's relatively common I'm trying to I'm trying to remember if I've had a specific conversation about this exact thing on my show. I'm not sure that I have, but breakthroughs in quotation marks uh, happen. That's kind of what you're constantly searching for, I think, as a, as a producer. Um, you're constantly searching for that kind of moment where everything clicks into place. And then that newly discovered seam can then be mined for a certain amount of material, basically. And that happens if you kind of be, well, it depends, everyone's different, obviously, but in my, in my case, I'll, I'll work away for, um, I don't know, <laughs> an indeterminate period of time, weeks, months, sometimes years to reach one of those, um, turning points. And then there is good music that gets made so like I said that that one in particular that yielded the kind of first scuba material was probably the second of those that I'd had um and and you know it when it happens you know it's uh, it's un uh, unmistakable and it's a great feeling it's honestly one of the best feelings if not the best feeling in the world that I've experienced um just the yeah just the kind of realization the kind of you know the confirmation that everything you've been doing <laughs> it wasn't a waste of time you know um in 2007 as we mentioned you moved to berlin um which in a way and obviously i'm looking from the outside seemed like kind of quite a, a strange idea because you know you were making music that was heavily associated with london that was based around london i mean it was getting more more international but it was still like london was very much the center of it why did you decide to move so it was partly financial. I'd got to the point where I could quit my day job, but living in London, even then was very expensive. And uh, living in Berlin then was significantly cheaper than it is now. In fact, it was unbelievably cheap. So that was a motivating factor. But I think more importantly, I'd, I, so I mentioned that, you know, dubstep kind of blew up as it were in, in 2006. And by middle of 2007, it was acquiring characteristics that I really didn't like very much. So it had become very dance floor oriented kind of music, understandably. And, you know, when crowds get bigger, there was real pressure to, you know, give those crowds what they want. And, you know, bigger crowds obviously have different expectations. Different, uh, Yeah, they want something, some different, uh characteristics from the music they're going to be played um and i just didn't like it very much you know and it was not a smart business decision at all it was uh if you're talking about you know the um career progression was not best served certainly in the immediate term from getting out of that but i i really felt like i wanted to do something different you know and berlin just seemed to be a place that had possibilities 
I'd been there a couple of times. I, I knew a couple of people. Uh, Jamie from Vex had already moved over, and I'd been like I played there a couple of times, and it just seemed like a really interesting, it felt it, interesting place. It, it seemed like a place where shit was possible, you know, um, in a fairly yeah, indefined way. And I, you know, that in com in combination with uh, the fact that it was going to be just a lot easier to live in my nascent period as a, you know, self-employed full-time musician, it just seemed to make sense really. And I, you know, so I literally just put my stuff in the car and, and went one day. And you said yeah. you, you, oh, oh. sorry. You, you said you'd played there. So there was some kind of, there were places there playing music like yours. Yeah, absolutely. So there were a couple of different local crews putting on little dubstep nights. Uh, the thing about dubstep is that it was the it was the first genre. Oh, that was a weird way of saying genre. It was the first. It was the first genre that came out of the um, the hardcore continuum, the num, uh, during the era of in the internet. So people cottoned onto it in weird parts of the world pretty quickly. Like I was playing, uh, I was playing internationally regularly before I was playing regularly in London, really, uh, as a DJ, which was only possible, obviously, because you know people were able to stream uh, Rinse FM, and there were you know archives that people would put up, and you know you could buy records over the internet and listen to you know listen to clips and all that. So, um, yeah, there were there was there were little scenes like in quite a lot of you know, places that you wouldn't have expected. And, you know, Berlin obviously is a great music town. There was actually, as, as I remember it um, in 2007 arriving, I remember it being, despite what I've just said about the, you know, there, there were bits and pieces going on. I remember it being very dominated by minimal in particular. But what I've subsequently learned is that actually that had, that was a relatively new thing. And previous to that, up to maybe 2000 and middle of 2006 or something, actually music in Berlin clubs was much more varied but certainly the um the environment that i arrived in was uh yeah it was minus records everywhere which was kind of cool you know I, I actually liked it uh it was a it was a it was a nice change for me i was really into that kind of whole sound that kind of aesthetic even if it was a little bit late in 2007 um in terms of the way that music actually developed okay it was it was a very different way of thinking it was the exact opposite in fact of the kind of ravey dubstepy stuff that i was trying to get away from in london so it made a lot of sense you know and i immediately liked it so it, yeah it, it made sense immediately well this is what i want to ask i mean how did living in berlin influence your music um and one of the reasons i ask is because um the first records you did as scb uh, in 2010 mm. were a lot more were a lot more techno was that sort of deliberate you know a result of living in berlin Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the first time I went to Panorama Bar, which would have been fairly soon after I got there, uh, say the end of 2007, immediately I had a very conscious, you know, yearning to play four, five, six hour sets at Panorama Bar. <laughs> like that was an immediate ambition as like, two minutes after walking into the room. And that was never going to be possible with dubstep even if it was slightly weird technically dubstep so yeah that was something that i i kind of put my mind to but you know not but without you know crossing over entirely like one of the things that i wanted to wanted to do was kind of continue the um the kind of continue and develop the aspects of bass music that i liked and there were other people doing similar kind of stuff. So, I mean, most obviously like Skull Disco was just, had become pretty huge at that point. And that, those guys and then, you know, the early Hessel stuff, which emerged and, um, you know, there were other producers doing interesting stuff too. And, you know, it was just, it was the kind of, like I said, the opposite of the ravey stuff, which had, the kind of dumb ravey stuff, which had become really popular. And uh, Berlin, I guess, gave a it was a it was a good place to do that stuff you know and the the surroundings of the city really kind of lent itself to um being soundtracked by that kind of music i mean i i was talking to someone the other day actually about you know my first album 
a mutual antipathy, which is like, which is basically tunes that I wrote in the first three months of living in Berlin. Like it's it's really like pretty bleak, um, extremely grey sounding stuff, and that's like you know Berlin in the kind of autumn and winter um, in a on a record. Like it really is is that is that record. Um, so yeah, it, it made a lot of sense really to what I wanted to see musically. Uh, and there were a few years. Um uh, when you were using like the scuba uh, name a lot less, and then you kind of came back to it uh, more recently, sort of two thousand seventeen-ish, I, I, I think. Um, mm. w- yeah, w- why did you decide to do that? Um, well, I had a hmm. Well, I mean, I I don't know. I I have. How do I put this? I had a few years after all this stuff after all this kind of like post-dubstep stuff and you know the kind of development of the dubstep techno sounds the kind of uk house thing really happened and it was influenced by funky but you know ultimately it was a pretty mainstream house thing and i was really caught up in that i it was part of you know as my my aforementioned ambitions to play long sets of panorama bar kind of influenced um wanting to make house music and you know it was a like three or four years i suppose of doing the you know the international house circuit as it were with all its faults and um you know there are positives to it too lots of fun can be had but i mean i i, I reached a point probably um, after I wrote the, well, just after the, um, release of a, the last scuba album, which came out in the beginning of 2015, I, I really kind of, I don't know, I kind of fell out of love, I suppose, with the whole thing. And I had a rather really quite a tough five years or so, to be honest, which I don't, I wouldn't really, which actually took us up to the pandemic, really. I think the, the, five, the kind of second half of the last decade. I didn't enjoy it at all musically and I found it really difficult and you know the schedules involved um touring schedules I mean um which kind of creep up on you I mean you are rewarded for doing more as a DJ like the the way the system is set up you are the more you do the the more you get you know and in terms of everything like it just it's a it's a self-supporting mechanism and the more you feed into it the more you get out of it i mean that sounds obvious but i mean it really does the kind of multiplier effect there and i kind of burnt myself out with it really um and i found myself at the end of 2018 or so just hating what i was doing basically so i took um 2019 off entirely which was the worst year to take off djing (laughs) because it then became three years and um yeah i uh in the last two years i have to say i've kind of found my enjoyment of it again you know so i'm you know i've just uh, kind of glossed over quite a long period but i mean there was like to, to i mean long story short there was a bad period and now it's over <laughs> basically uh, and now in fact you've got a new mixtape coming out um digital underground um, which is influenced by the likes of Top Buzz, SL2, and Shades of Rhythm, um, uh, which is, I mean, a fantastic thing to be influenced by. Like, how did you, how did you get to that? And would you agree that it's kind of uh, quite a retro sound? I absolutely retro. So I've spent a long time on my, well, many episodes of my podcast bemoaning the fact that there is no new music now. So I felt I should emphasize the point by making a completely unambitious un- retro <laughs> old school hardcore mixtape it's not an album it's a mixtape um no really what what happened with it well the the reason it exists essentially is because in 2021 i spent half a year scoring a um independent american comedy film Mm -hmm. which was extremely difficult and uh i (laughs) reached the end of it uh eventually and it's actually coming out as a release uh next month the soundtrack is anyway the movie's coming out in fact i think it's coming out or yes this month but um you know when electronic music producers 
get asked to score films it's usually like a you know a dark thriller or like a sci-fi film or something but no i had to um work on a comedy which was you know actually i looking back on it now i learned a huge amount and i got an enormous amount out of the process generally but it was hard it was very hard and it involved really stepping out of my comfort zone musically in a way which was like i said in hindsight great and super useful um but at the end of it i i felt like i needed to get as far away from that as possible and the the furthest distance away seems to be making old school hardcore <laughs> so 50 old school hardcore old school hardcore tunes later there's a mixtape called digital underground basically i'm interested like you obviously you seem like a person who who's typically made futuristic music um you know the the a lot of the the music that was coming out um on hot flash was very kind of futuristic and, and forward looking how, how do you feel about making something retro um i mean i've always been i mean certainly with my own music i've been quite upfront about my influences from you know my kind of formative period i suppose of getting into Getting into, getting into electronic stuff, which is, you know, the familiar kind of artificial intelligence era warp and, you know, Detroit Techno and all, and all the rest of it. So I've always been kind of okay with having that stuff audible and kind of obvious, you know, to people who know what to listen out for in my stuff. I, I don't think I've, I haven't got a problem with that at all. Um, but I think, you know, the fact that I'm calling this a mixtape instead of an album should probably give you a clue as to <laughs> how I feel about it generally. I mean, it's it's a bit of fun, you know. It's it's uh, I had so much fun making these tunes and I have had loads of fun playing them out too. Um, but it's important to emphasise that, um, you know, the wheel is not being reinvented here and I'm completely happy with pointing that out, you know. I don't think it's anything worse than when someone comes out to do promo for a new product and try and make it out like something it's not. Um, this is is what it is, you know. Uh, I, I had, like I said, I'm double emphasis, like so much fun doing it. Um, but it's it's uh, yeah, it's not <laughs> it's not new sounding music at all. I've got to say, it's a lot of fun to listen to as well. Good. Well, that's that's the whole point. Yeah, glad to hear that. I wanted to ask about your podcast, if I may, um, the excellently named Not A Diving <laughs> Podcast with Scuba, uh, which you launched in 2022. Why did you decide to do that? Well, basically, um, I'm just, I'm a very big fan of the format generally. And they're just, you know, I was, I thought to myself one day when I was looking down my Apple podcast app, yeah, there just isn't a lot of music content in my kind of diet of long form podcasting really. So, I mean, I just figured that, I figured that I'd be quite good at it, <laughs> frankly, you know? And um, I've had a lot of fun doing it, you know? Again, you know, I think, you know, what I've mentioned before about how I actually enjoy my work now, like the more, the more if, I, if I'm having, if I am enjoying something, um, if I'm having fun doing it, then it's, uh, it's worth doing. But I mean, I, I do think though that, on a more serious note, there is a kind of lack of serious debate and serious kind of commentary, certainly in a long form uh, format in the music press and certainly in the electronic music press. And I felt that I could help plug the gap. You know, I think there should be more of that kind of stuff. I think it's, you know, I think messaging in electronic music is really narrow. I think people are people very rarely express anything other than a kind of very short list of predictable opinions um and, and some of that is to do with fear understandable fear but you know there are certain obviously there are certain areas which you just shouldn't go anywhere near but i mean there's also lots of other stuff which you know you can debate and um you know there are people with interesting things to say you know so i just figured that there was a bit of a, a space and uh, a bit of a gap in the market as it were and um, we've been trying to fill it, basically. No, you are you are definitely good at it. I think some of my favourite episodes. I I was thinking about the statement. MJ Cole, Dave Clark, mm. Spoonie, and Plastician. 
I yeah. think, are, are some of the ones I've enjoyed most. Uh, did you have any particular favourites? Actually, I always say Fred P because um, he really, really opened up in quite a personal way. And I don't know him at all. That was the first time I, I talked to him. So we did like, it was like two and a half hours or something. And he really got personal about stuff, which was, I mean, it was, you know, unexpected and really, really great. So yeah, that's the one I usually point out um, when people ask me that question. I also like the totally enormous extinct dinosaurs one as well. That's a kind of a nerdy music industry conversation, but of the kinds that I enjoy having. Because uh, you've always been quite outspoken. Um, <laughs> I was thinking in, in 2012, you called Dave Clark a Tory. Um, I, and I know you you apologised and, and made up. In fact, he was on he was on your your podcast, and it was a really good interview. But do you do you regret that? So, <laughs> um, I was asked the question the other day: What would you tell your fifteen or like you know what would you tell yourself um, at the outset of your musical career? And my answer, which is the same as the answer to this question, is yeah, I would never go on Twitter and talk as little as possible <laughs> um i think um i've definitely talked too much over the years sometimes um i mean sometimes you say things which are misinterpreted and you know that's always yeah that, that can happen to anyone but you know i've i have a a real compulsion to um <laughs> express my disagreement when i feel it inside which is very rarely a, uh, a good idea um and particularly when if you're you know as a as a musician you know people i mean i i feel this as a music fan people want to project themselves onto the music that they like and you need to i think it really helps if you allow them to do that and the more you say the more you express the more of a dick you are in public the harder it is for people to do that, you know? And I wish I'd um, been more cognizant of that over the years, but I mean, uh, it is it is tough. And, you know, um, I do find it extremely difficult to shut my mouth. And th actually the good thing about having a podcast is that seemingly you can say things on a podcast and people get much less angry than if you say the same things on Twitter. So that's another good reason to have, <laughs> have a podcast for me. Well, I'm, I'm interested because um, it's kind of, I was wondering if, if you felt it kind of created a new kind of connection with your fans because, um, you know, you go from your fans like might have read, I don't know, before they'd maybe read like one interview with you every three months or two interviews or, or something like that. And to go from that to hearing a long interview, you know, pretty much every every week is quite is quite different. Do you think it's a new, a different kind of connection? Yeah, I mean, I was worried about doing it. I was worried about... Um giving away too much but you know as what i've just said like i've already given away too much so at this point the, you know the horse has bolted so probably the more color and description uh you know the more detail to the picture probably the better in my in my case and i think that's really what it's been so yeah like i think people um i think particularly for people who you know fans of my older music who maybe don't go to clubs anymore but are still interested for those kinds of people, I think it's really good, you know, and, and, you know, as people get the people who are, who still like the music they liked when they were 25, when they're, you know, 35 or 40, you know, they're, they're really interested in the music and they're interested in the way it works and the way the, the scene works. And that's kind of what we talk about on the show. You know, it's the kind of the nuts and bolts of it really. So for those kinds of people, yeah, it's really, I think it's, um, yeah, they, they really like that kind of stuff. And then for, for, for younger people come into it too, you know, listening to the kind of more historical discussions and then also the way, you know, the, the detailed stuff about the way the industry works today. I mean, I wish I'd had that sort of um, resource. You know, I wish I was able to listen to those sorts of conversations when I was when I was starting out, you know. So. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask, actually, why you, you chose to speak um, so much about music industry issues, like things like like Bandcamp. Um, yeah, why, why, why do you speak to them? Is, is as you say, you know, you kind of wished you had that advice when you were younger. Is that is that basically it? I mean, <laughs> to be honest, um, 
whether I whether I comment on something or not is usually informed by whether I disagree with the sort of prevailing narrative or not. Right. So if I really disagree with something, then I'll definitely make a point of uh, voicing the, the the opposite opposite view. So, um, but 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 also, I yeah that was one of the one of the motivating factors for doing it. One of the things I wanted to the, what I wanted to be the one of the podcasts to be about at the start. Um, I didn't want it to be necessarily, you know, interviews with DJs about their careers. I mean, quite a lot of the episodes are that. But I wanted it to be a discussion of issues. You know, that's what I really wanted it to be at the outset. Um, and the way it's kind of developed over time is that there's some of that and then there's some more career stuff and then there's some more kind of like scene stuff. And, you know, um, there's a good mix of stuff on there. But yeah, no, I, I definitely wanted, yeah, that was that was a an aspiration at the outset was to have, um, you know, real discussion about the important stuff, which is often misunderstood. I think, I mean, like the, f the very first, uh, the very first episode, um, was around the time that, um, Daniel X, uh, investment in that defense company oh, yeah. came out and there was all sorts of just, you know, I mean, I understand why people don't like that. Absolutely. But I mean, it, it's really not relevant to um, Spotify. Yeah, uh, Spotify's payouts. You know, what Daniel what Daniel Ek does with his money is, is is not relevant. Like it wasn't Spotify investing; it was him investing as a private investor. So, you know, I, just that kind of shit. I just, you know, I, I instead of instead of mouthing off on Twitter, if I can spend fifteen minutes fleshing it out a bit more in a way which is probably going to enrage people a bit less because it, because it is more fleshed out and it's not just fuck you, you're wrong, <laughs> you know, which unfortunately is what Twitter, um, often degenerates into. Um, yeah, that's, um, it's, it's the compulsion to, to comment, you know, and voice my disagreement, which I really find very difficult to keep under control. So I, uh, I haven't listened to the band camp episodes. Um, I must confess. Um, <laughs> okay, well, uh, let me let me let me cut in there and say the first one's good. The second one is a bit probably give it on a miss. Okay, but but would you say like I mean you you say you normally do something when you disagree with the the general narrative. Um, can I guess from that? I mean the general narrative is that changes at Bandcamp are very bad for musicians. Do I guess from that that that's not a view you necessarily subscribe to? Well. Um, Everyone said that when Epic took it over and that's not what happened. So actually what happened when Epic took over is they massively uh, invested in the company and they, they doubled the headcount, more than doubled the headcount and, um, you know, seemingly were taking it seriously in terms of, um, you know, developing it as a platform. So, which was not the expected uh, developments, which were not the expected developments when, when Epic took over and, you know, I totally understand why people are, um, why, why people's reactions to bigger companies getting involved in something which is as venerated as Bandcamp. I understand why people expect the worst, but it doesn't just doesn't always happen like that, you know. So essentially, what I was arguing on those on those two podcasts was that um, Bandcamp has uh, it's been good but not great over time. Like it's. Uh, there are you know, those aspects of the platform which leave a lot to be desired. You know, as a general concept, it's great. We, you know, it's a really important part of our label business, actually. So I'm, you know, I'm absolutely not kind of doing it down. But, um, you know, there are areas for improvement, shall we say? And it's it's a you know it it could go either way, frankly. Um, and just because a you know, a relatively large company. I mean, Song Trader isn't even a huge company, but you know, it, just because they get to, just because a, a company gets taken over, I mean, like that. You know, that's not necessarily bad at all. You know, it, it's a, it's a, it's a silly reaction, I think. So, yeah. I mean, there's there's lots of detail though. I mean, it's an yeah. hour and a half of of me mouthing off, which you probably don't need to. Know yet, you know, I'll, I'll go back and listen to the first one, but yeah. Not the second, if you if you don't recommend. Yeah, no, I mean, there's uh, the first one is mostly. A, um, I mean, I, I essentially read a bunch of articles and summarized them in the first one. So there's lots of you know clever people who knew more than me having their work summarized essentially right. on, on that. So yeah, there's some really interesting stuff though. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, it's quite interesting, I think, coming, um, talking about the podcast and some of the things you talk about, you've been, again, quite outspoken um, about dance music journalism, um, which I think probably be fair to say you're, you're quite critical of in general. <laughs> um, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I mean, what, what, I suppose as a general kind of thing, what do you, what do you think, what do you, why are you critical of it? You know, what, what do you dislike in it? Um, ooh, I mean, <laughs> lots of things. I mean, first of all, um, musician not liking the music press isn't really a, you know, it's not, it's not news, is it? Um, I think we all have our um, reservations. But I mean, no, I, I think that, you know, my, my, my reservations about the press is really um, the dance press is, and the music press generally is, I mean, a lot of it is just a symptom of the press more widely and the decline of journalism more widely, you know, and um, that's been gone into uh, in great detail elsewhere. Like we all know why it's happened. Um, and, you know, I think that the dance, I mean, the dance press is, I don't know. I mean, it's difficult for me to, um, I don't know which aspect. I mean, there's, there's, <laughs> there's a number of avenues that could be gone down here. I mean, I think that it's very narrow, basically. I mean, that, that's my primary complaint, if I had to, maybe it's not my primary complaint. It's the complaint that I want to emphasize here. Um, and it's informed by, I think, a very narrow group of people with a very narrow outlook, actually. Um, and I think that's contributed to its decline as well as the other forces that have um, contributed to the decline of, of, of print press and journalism across the board. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, a, it's, it's in structural decline, I think, as a, as a sector. And I don't think there's much anyone can do about that. Um, and I think that quite, quite alternative media, although obviously that is a term which contains a lot of, you know, pretty awful stuff but i think you know if as a catch-all term there's real opportunity for better things to be done and long-form po podcasting is absolutely part of that i think i i wish there'd be you know one of the things i really bemoan is the the, the decline of serious music reviews and serious critical crit, serious criticism of, of music itself um i really miss that and i really think there's there's, op there's an opportunity or there is a gap for really serious informed criticism of um of albums and you know of, of the sort that um you know like well-informed um serious discussion of music itself i think um there's a real lack of that and i think i think it's a i think it would be popular if it was done in the right way so i think there are opportunities for um for music uh i, I don't know if i was gonna say music journalism i'm not sure if that's the right term but you know that side of music criticism to be done better and you know to be more popular basically you're listening to radio primavera sound proudly presented by cupra